0: Our economic system treats the atmosphere like an open sewer. The damages are being dispersed across the entire global population while only a small subset is reaping the rewards of that kind of exploitative relationship with the planet.
1: Hey,
2: hey humans. humans! Welcome to Demystifying Science, the only interspecies show in the galaxy.
1: Today, we met up with Shiloh Raga from Conservation International. An organization whose mission is to balance the relationship between nature and humanity by addressing the sustainability of food, fresh water, livelihoods, and clean air.
2: The organization has supported projects that have protected more than 2.3 million square miles of land, marine, and coastal areas across 77 countries.
1: Their tireless work and deeply rooted ethics have caused CI to receive consistently high ratings from philanthropic watchdog organizations like Charity Watch and Charity Navigator.
2: Shaila herself is an incredible figure. She's negotiated climate talks at the UN, including the seminal Paris Agreement, and has a long-term goal of creating a sustainable future for the inhabitants of Earth, one that's outside the normal paradigm of extraction economics.
1: So our conversation sought solutions to these entrenched paradigms that have led to the current state of degraded terrestrial ecology. Though we weren't able to solve the problems in one go, we did spiral in on the idea that democracy requires many voices, not just two. Term limits and campaign finance reform came out as clear starting points for removing conflicts of interest within governments.
2: To me, what was most interesting, perhaps, was when we tried to figure out ways to have a productive discussion about ecological threats between humans on different ends of the political spectrum. Shaila suggests humans first find a way to agree on a common goal, whether that be clean air, poison-free water tables, or simple foundations in reciprocity. Once two parties, political or otherwise, can agree on a shared value, a discussion of tactics can unfold in good faith.
1: Yep, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Shaila suggests it'll be interesting for us to meet up with an industrialist that harbors extraction interests and try out the techniques see what shared values can be found. So keep an eye out for that in the future.
2: In the meantime, like and subscribe so we can bring you that conversation and more.
1: Take care, humans. We'll see you next time.
0: Bye.
1: So you're a conservationist.
0: Yes, yeah, so a lot of my job focuses on trying to preserve the integrity and the health of nature, of the kind of life-supporting systems of our planet, because, you know, we, humanity, our species, evolved out of nature. And unfortunately, we've been destroying nature, and we've built an, an economy that is defined by and dependent on the destruction of nature rather than its preservation or regeneration. So I really focus a lot on trying to kind of create the incentives and the processes and even just the value system to recover that value system of conserving um, our Earth's life-supporting systems
1: that's beautiful
0: Thank you I mean do you do you all have a similar like where you come from do you also have nature and did you also evolve um, from different beings we did.
2: But we've been around for so long and we've faced so many crises with our planet that this is kind of ancient history for us. So it's interesting to watch the humans go through it because we had these things happen on our planet, Alva Floss, but it was hundreds of thousands of years ago. We've, we've grown enough to be able to understand that our relationship to nature is what allows us to survive. We
1: don't, yeah, really, so did you, we don't really see ourselves as separate from nature, so that took a while.
0: That's good. I mean, did you end up having a, a collapse in your ecosystem, and did a lot of your, your species die off?
2: We had a very strange event happen where our sun began to extinguish, and so we had to move the entire planet. And when we moved the entire planet, there was a very, very difficult process of restoring the ecological balance afterwards when we found a new sun. Because we were underground for something like 500 years. Earth years. Earth years. And when we got to the new sun, we had to basically come back out onto this frozen surface and start over. And so being able to start over with all of our cognition about what that means allowed us to really lay down a good understanding of what happens in ecological systems. And a
1: lot of people didn't believe us at first, or didn't believe the scientists. It was a real mess, but we worked our way through it.
0: Yeah, that sounds familiar. We're having a really similar situation here where I think um, a lot of us, and scientists in particular, are drawing attention to the fact that we're reaching this tipping point um, and that we're, we're consuming far too many resources than our planet can sustain. And it's also led to a lot of inequality where some people are accumula- accumulating a lot of wealth and a lot of resources at the expense of vulnerable uh, populations that don't have access to nutrition or to clean air or clean water. Um, and there's been a lot of inequality that I think has also resulted in strife, in, in protests, in, in just a recognition of all of the injustices in the system as well.
2: What's strange about Earth right now is that it seems like it's almost impossible to disagree about these things. And yet there's a lot of disagreement on Earth about this right now, right?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of disagreement because, you know, our society and our economy was built under certain assumptions where people have profited and people have become very wealthy and people have benefited ultimately. And right now, our economic system treats the atmosphere like an open sewer no one's really paying for that it's the the damages and the harm are being distributed and dispersed a, across the entire global population while only a small subset of our population is benefiting and 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 reaping the benef- the rewards of, of that kind of exploitative um, activity or relationship with the planet and so I think especially when there's vested interest and there, there's resistance to change and there's resistance to kind of rethink our value system and to rethink the economy in a way that might actually um, benefit um, a, a wider range of our population than we've formerly seen so I think a lot of the denial of science is is rooted in that resistance and it's almost like we've been brainwashed to to um, adopt this value system that has, has come at the expense of our planet and as a result at the expense of our own well-being.
2: So what are the two, if you had to kind of describe them, what are the two value systems that are fighting against one another?
0: So I think it's it's a value system of extraction and exploitation, right? So of of basically trying to dominate and trying to command nature and to really see nature as a resource, as a, rather than as a, as a life supporting system, right? So that, that's one worldview. And the second worldview is one of reciprocity. And we've seen that really adopted and embraced and modeled by indigenous societies all around the world. It's, it's where we live in synergy and in, in um, uh, harmony with nature, where we don't see nature as something to dominate, um, but rather as us being part of a broader uh, system, us being part of, of the planet, rather than us being apart from it. And I think that that the economy and the value system that generates out of reciprocity is not one where you you uh, profit from the the exploitation of, of nature, or you see it as a financial resource, but but rather you 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 see it as more of a regenerative and um, balanced. System. And I think those are kind of in conflict, and and we're, we're at the situation where we've seen an accelerating um, and uh, unregulated growth in our economy that has that really, quite frankly, is unsustainable, and will lead to a collapse of our ecosystem if not if if we don't start to kind of bend that curve and move more towards um, uh, degrowth or or uh, policies that actually don't promote consumption as the basis of our economic model.
1: So how do you incentivize extractors to get on board with a more holistic attitude towards existence?
2: Especially across country lines, right? Because if you have one country that decides to extract less, how do you stop another country from basically deciding that means they can just take more?
0: Yeah, I think that that's, that's fundamentally the issue that we're struggling with right now with climate change because it's a global problem and emissions from the United States and emissions from China have the same impact on our atmosphere. So even if one country um, makes a lot of progress, it, it, if another country doesn't, then it undermines the entire system and it really could backtrack or it could even negate the progress that we see in other countries. But you also see the other dynamic, which is there's, there's some countries like Pacific Islands or even least developed countries that are least responsible for causing climate change but are suffering the most. So it really goes both ways in terms of how unbalanced it is. In terms of the solutions, I think there are a number of different pressure points. One is ensuring that governments and those that are in charge of organizing our society put in place guardrails. Uh, that are enforced. So we recognize that, that there are certain substances that might be harmful for humans, so they're regulated. Or we recognize that the emission or the kind of um, eff- uh, effluence of certain chemicals into our water or into our air is harmful for human health, it gets regulated. And so companies that are, that are extractive companies have to um, uh, remediate uh, any negative or harmful impact. So I think government regulation is a really critical and really important component um, that, that ensures that, that actions that won't happen organically um, are, are actually built into um, our framework, our regulatory framework. The second is
1: hold, is... hold on one second. I just have a question. I'm sorry. The real sure. issue, though, is that governments are paid for by a lot of these extraction companies.
2: And the fact that nobody trusts their government, right? You're, wow. what, I like, wasn't
1: even going to go there, but...
2: But there's like 12% faith in government right now, in the United States at least, on either side.
1: Hold on, Quinn, one sec. That's okay, really okay, interesting. Okay, but okay. I really want to understand how you get governments to make actions when their funding sources are in direct conflict with these aims. That's a good question.
0: Yeah, you totally hit the nail nail on the head because I think in particular, the influence of corporations in our political process completely undermines its integrity. If you have corporations that are providing um, resources to reelect certain elected officials, then it reduces their incentive to regulate those very same corporations. So I think that campaign finance reform and ensuring that there's cool-off periods among elected officials kind of going back into industry and going back into the private sector are two very simple and important things that need to happen to ensure that we have the proper checks and balances and that there's there really is integrity in the system. Are, people, are there the,
1: countries that are doing that already? Better than others?
0: Um, probably. I mean, I, I, I haven't evaluated the campaign finance Regulations and policies of other countries, but I would expect that um, the Scandinavian countries probably have um, regulations and policies related to that. Um, I'm I I wouldn't be able to name specific ones, but I know that in the United States, our I would I would perceive our political system as being quite um, influenced by 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 corporations, either explicitly or implicitly, and especially with cit- the C- Citizens United case. I think it's eroded our ability to 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 um, uh, enforce those policies, and but but the other piece is also you know elected officials are accountable to the citizenry, and so I think um, if voters um, recognize the importance of these issues um, and elevate them as critical in um, what they demand in terms of the values of our elected officials, that's also an important driver of change is ensuring that we're holding them accountable to higher standards and that we're calling out um, conflicts of interest when and we, we see those cases.
1: So how can you incentivize the kind of transparency that will allow conflicts of interest to be apparent?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that in a system like in in the United States, I think having kind of a a wide range of pressure points, including investigative journalism or um, even putting pressure on companies themselves. So we've seen a lot of this in the climate space where, um, as we know, there's a large oil lobby and uh, extractive companies have been um, advocating for or even Um, uh, trying to block regulation of carbon dioxide as a pollutant um, and have been quite successful to date in doing so, but by mobilizing and engaging youth in divestment movements or uh, mobilizing shareholders to demand that companies set climate commitments and targets, those have actually proven to be really effective in um, driving the change at the corporate level um, and and holding them accountable, right? For shareholders to hold these companies accountable for uh, not advocating for policies that undermine regulation of carbon dioxide and and put us on path to addressing climate change is also another way of doing so. So I don't think we should underestimate the power of individual and community-led advocacy because it has been proven to be effective.
2: What about... I know that Earth has a history of boycotts being a really effective mechanism, but I don't really see that being a very popular tactic right now. Do you have any in, any insight on that?
0: Yeah, I think boycotts have been uh, effective in the past. I think we've seen campaigns against you know certain brands that use a lot of palm oil. We know that palm oil is one of the largest drivers of deforestation. So actually, hold on. Let me let me pause you for a second.
2: Palm oil is actually a really interesting example, because on one hand, it is a driver of deforestation. But on the other hand, it's also this massive economic powerhouse for the countries that produce it. And so you have these two forces that need to be balanced, one of which is saving these ancient forests that have been untouched for millions of years, even by natural disasters. But on the other hand, you have millions and millions of people in abject poverty for whom palm oil is the only way out.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Palm oil is an, it's a highly productive, high-yielding crop. And so in particular for communities that are impoverished or are looking for a, or livelihood, palm oil is quite lucrative because it can... Um, you know, in particular, palm oil, when it's grown on cleared forest, you have two sources of income. You have timber, so you can you can sell whatever it is that you extract from that land. And then when you replant palm oil on deforested land, you have the second source of income, which is the palm oil itself as it grows and is harvested. And in terms of productivity, there really isn't a clear parallel or one that can actually generate as much or is as easy to grow or as uh, as easy to, to actually harvest as palm oil. So we recognize and we know that palm oil itself is really important for the local economy of countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, and also for, for local communities that depend on palm oil for their livelihoods. So I think that your initial question was about boycotting. And there was a, a huge. There have been huge movements against brands like Nutella or even Kit Kat because of their use of palm oil. And I think, in some ways, some of those campaigns did backfire because they 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 basically set up a, a binary, you know, decision. There was this polarity: buy palm oil or don't. But really, neglected to highlight the the middle ground, which is that palm oil is really important for local communities and for the economies of these countries. And it can be farmed and cultivated and produced sustainably. The problem that we have is when these these commodities are produced unsustainably. So when they're planted on on illegally deforested land, um, or they're planted without on peatland, which is a, a very, very um, high carbon high density carbon density uh, ecosystem. It's basically like a wetland and it's Uh, You must have seen that we had big fires in Indonesia and Malaysia um, over the past few years because of the drainage of this peat. Palm oil should not be planted on peat. It is not the right type of soil profile for palm oil to grow. But because of um, an unsustainable expansion of palm oil, it has been planted in those areas. So what we should be advocating for is not a, a boycott of palm oil, but rather A push for sustainable palm oil uh, so that we can cultivate and produce this commodity that is so important for so many of our personal care use products or even for food and for the livelihoods of of communities, but also to provide an important counterweight against the pressure to deforest. If you don't have a source of income, you don't have an incentive to keep forest standing. So that's really what our, I work at an organization called Conservation International, and that's really what we focus on uh is on creating the incentives for sustainably certified palm oil and for governments to enforce the uh the the use of or the these practices and for communities to benefit from sustainable palm oil as well. Mickey, did you have something to ask specific about this because well, I was going to change the topic?
1: Yeah, I was too a little bit. This is fascinating. We've studied palm oil a lot lately too. It's I think you really you really got into something cool that I loved which was talking about binary systems backfiring, where you polarize your constituency. And I hear a lot of talk on Earth about carbon dioxide. And interestingly, a lot of the conversation, especially a lot of the arguing about climate change, comes down to this one metric. And so a lot of conversations, which should really be rooted in Do I like poisoning my environment in myriad ways get boiled down to is there or isn't there too much carbon dioxide in X, Y, or Z location?
2: Because the people that are opposed to this sort of idea, and this is exactly where I was going to change the subject to, so that's nice. But the people that are opposed to this idea are opposed on the basis, uh, it's an epistemic opposition. Like, we can't go back in time and study things to one one-hundredth of a decimal. These sorts of temperature changes that are being proposed in the research are subject to doubt by people that aren't necessarily certain of how good these measurements are on the part of humans as you start to go back a thousand years, ten thousand years, a hundred thousand years. And so there's this ample ground for doubt and arguing and everything else. While the conversation about the planet dying and creatures being poisoned and water being filled with chemicals from DuPont or 3M or whoever else, you know? These are corporations that people know they're poisoning the water. They know that there's corporations poisoning the air, and it doesn't necessarily totally all come down to carbon dioxide. Why isn't that more central in the discussion?
1: Or even climate change. I mean, the climate on Earth has changed a lot over the history of your planet. It's been hot, it's been cold, so I just wonder what the utility of focusing on this one aspect is when the real issue is not poisoning your backyard.
2: And killing everybody who lives in it.
0: Yeah, that's, those are all such important points and I, I almost feel like a lot of denialism is uh, a delay tactic. It, it's kind of drawing attention to whatever small amount of uncertainty there is because I mean there's no one that can with, uh, with precision predict the future. It's just impossible to do so, especially with a system as complicated as our climate, which affects on all has, is, is impacted by a new, numerous number of feedback loops. I mean, you think about something like albedo. So our, our poles are currently covered in ice, which is white, and it reflects sunlight. As the ice caps melt, they are replaced with darker surfaces like water or land which is dark, a dark surface that will absorb more sunlight and therefore accelerate the warming of our planet. That's a feedback loop that needs to be put into the model. And there's numerous other feedback loops, like even just the emissions of methane coming out of permafrost, um, that that perpetuate uh, or, or, or even could cancel out certain effects. And so it's, as you can imagine, it's a very complex system, and it also depends on our political response because every decision we're making, every single source of emissions today will have an impact and influence for hundreds of years to come depending on how long lived that um, the gas is in our atmosphere. So, so there's going to be, uh, you know, an infinite number of permutations and possible futures. Um, and, and I think that uh, getting hung up on that uncertainty is in some ways a delay tactic um, and, and undermines our ability to really address what we know, address the simple facts and address the, the clarity of what we do know rather than focusing on the uncertainty. And you like to also, I mean, I like to make this parallel of of insurance. So on earth, we have a a concept called insurance that you could apply for your uh, car or your house. The idea is that I pay a company a small amount every single month. And in the event that I get into a catastrophic uh, accident in the future, this company will then pay for whatever damages are incurred in exchange for this monthly payment. And it usually works out well because the insurance company will pay, will, will price your premium, as it's called, based on the amount of risk. So if I have a lot of parking tickets or parking violations, my premiums will probably be a bit higher. So the, this company does crunches the numbers and does the evaluation. Now, does this company know that I how likely it is, or that I am going to get into an accident next year or the year after, probably not. But they're willing to assume that risk. You can also think about um, and and I'm willing to pay for this insurance because I'd rather do that than pay thousands of dollars or my entire uh, yearly income when my if I do get into an accident in the future. It's a no brainer for me to pay insurance. The same thing you think about a bridge. If you're um you know driving across a bridge and um 99 or 98% of engineers say that bridge is going to collapse would you drive over it probably not and so it's the same thing with climate science do you listen to the 2% of engineers that are saying that bridge is going to stay standing and then you drive across and and risk falling down or risk your your life so, so I think that you know, rather than focusing on the um, the disproportionately small con- uh, uh, portion of scientists or even naysayers, I think we need to focus on what we know, and we need to focus on what uh, s- uh, no regrets or no brainer types of solutions there are. I don't think there would be anyone that would argue that keeping forests standing is actually in our best interest. It keeps our water clean. It keeps our air clean. It gives us a place to go and, and, and take rest when we're stressed or anxious. We know that we're part, humanity is part of nature. So, so I think we just need to focus more on what we know rather than on what we don't know. It seems like
2: it comes down to a question of narrative, though. There's absolutely no doubt that Earth is at this tipping point. But you still have roughly half of the population at least in the United States that doesn't seem to agree with that narrative. Would you agree with that?
0: Yes, I think there's a lot of people that don't agree with that narrative, but I think, you know, if we get if we just get stuck on one fact or, you know, believing in climate change or not, you might see a lot of polarity. But if you frame it in a different way like you said, the narrative, you know, do you want a Sustainable future where your children have enough food to eat, where your children can can breathe clean air, then chances are you'll see more consensus and more agreement. So I think, you know, in, in particular as a scientist that is working on trying to convince or persuade people to act in their own best interest, I try not to focus on you know, small facts where there might be disagreement. But rather focus on areas where there's a shared value or there's um, kind of a shared um, uh, acceptance of, of every human's dignity and acknowledging um, the ways that we can disarm some of the, those disagreements by finding common ground instead on, on account of other attributes or other things that motivate people.
2: Do you think that, Mickey was about to say oh, something. Go ahead. Do you think that falling fertility rates? where people are maybe not even having children at all affects their ability to think into the future? Because I've heard many people have this attitude of, well, why should I care? Why should I care about the future? Why should I care about what happens to the next generation or 10 generations down? I'm not going to be around.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a good point. And I, I, I've definitely heard that argument as well. And I think that there is... I think you know, as a, a product of our consumer culture and our, I guess, the value system that we were speaking about earlier—that prioritizes material gain or just kind of sensory gratification—gratification—that uh, um, has skewed the preference towards some of those more, you know, immediate uh, benefits or immediate kind of um, values. So I think it's really important that we kind of, uh, um, I guess, acknowledge that there's a deeper sense of humanity that might be, um, uh, I guess, transcends this immediate uh, priority for, or I guess affinity for uh, this, this sensory gratification and this material cons- consumptive gain. I think that everybody has that uh, deeper sense of belonging that might be Beneath the surface, and but might be latent, but is 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 capable of being unsurfaced and capable of 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 being discovered through. Um, I, I think um, a deeper connection between one another. That I think we've become so disconnected from one another that we've become more individualistic, and so even if people choose to have less children, I don't think that precludes. The, the need for social um, connection and the need for cooperation and collaboration. And, uh, you know, ultimately humans were our social beings. And I think that there is a lot that that can be done to uncover and tap into that that latent affinity that we all have to collaborate and cooperate and support one another.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. One thing I'm concerned about on Earth is that your scientific institutions have increasingly been focused on technology as opposed to understanding. And that technology often is aligned with extraction. So going back to what you said about the traditional, what was it, traditional?
2: Ecological. ecological
1: no, principles yeah. from the indigenous populations. I wonder if there's a way that that kind of narrative could be built back into your scientific institutions somehow.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a there's been a growing movement to recover, you know, what's called traditional knowledge. And I think it it really, I think, is based on that principle of of reciprocity of of humanity with nature and humanity with the ecosystems that we inhabit. Um, I think that you're absolutely right that that. There's also a a part of um, humanity that is geared towards um, kind of innovation and creation and creativity and technology and kind of engineered solutions. And I think that um, there might, there's a a need for us to also spark and ignite the creativity within us towards stewarding land as well. And to feel that, that sense of being restored by nature, rather than kind of just trying to build something out of it, um, and, and I think it's it's innate within each and every one of us, just simply because we evolved out out of this planet, and it's I think that that sentiment and that sense inhabits each and every one of us as well. Um, and and I would hope that by uh, igniting those connections between one another, we could also recover and restore that, that sense of reciprocity and connection to the planet as well.
2: It's interesting that you say that it's necessary to ignite this or reignite this connection between different groups of people because in many ways it seems like the United States is in crisis right now where there are two very clear groups that have almost no overlap in their identities. And so, creating some kind of—you co- mean politically? I mean, socially, everything's become political right now. All decisions, personal decisions, seem like they come down to political decisions. Would you
0: agree? Yeah, I would. I would say also that I, you know, I, I I've been looking, especially this year in the country I live in on Earth, there have been. Um, I think there issues related to injustice between different types of humans, different races or ethnic identities has reached a tipping point. I mean, it's been uh, prevalent and it's been elevated and highlighted and discussed for the last several decades and centuries. But I think especially now we're in a global pandemic as well, where most of us are sitting at home because there's a virus that... Um, is spreading quite rapidly and has caused a high degree of mortality. But because everyone has stayed home, I think that the injustices that we are seeing around us have become more recognized, more acknowledged, and uh, people are beginning to take personal responsibility over the collective state of humanity and of our society. So I do think that a lot of these issues have become politicized, but I think the solutions to all of these problems are the same. The solution to injustice, the solution to climate change, the solution to the risk to our human health because of pandemics are all, I think the there's one foundational solution. If we address climate change, if we address, address injustice, it's one solution to all of these multitudes of problems. And I think the root of it is the disconnection between one another and the disconnection between ourselves and the planet. And the sense that we are just um, inhabiting this planet in pursuit of our self-interest. And with that dominant value system, it has created all of these various problems. Over consumption, which has led to climate change, Um, over or or kind of um, denying people their rights and their rights to land and their rights to job and and to to the resources has caused an inequality and an injustice between people. Um, uh, Treating um, other species, other animals in ways that um, causes destruction of natural ecosystems and and has put them in a a position where we're selling them in wet markets um, has caused the, the spread of viruses from animals to humans which again is is rooted out of that disconnection between us and the planet. So I think that we're at this this unique moment where we can see how all of the the challenges that humanity is facing are really rooted in the same problem. And if we can have that foresight, have that insight, that presence, I think we can come together to address them all concurrently. But people hate each other. Fundamentally, deeply, we talk to people that
2: are on different sides of the political spectrum and this is not people are not coming together. This is not something that's happening at all. People are shooting each other in the streets in the United States. This is this is not something that is going to be erased anytime soon because people are dividing further and further and yet the planet is in crisis. And so these are beautiful ideas and This is the world that I want to see for humans. I completely agree. The questions that we have are more foundational, I suppose. What needs to be done in order to create a narrative that both sides can agree on, despite the fact that they hate each other? How do you heal? It's, it's, you know, there's conflicts on the earth that are thousands of years old. You go to the Middle East and you see Israel and Palestine and there's absolutely no chance of those conflicts being solved. You go to Korea and you see this cleavage that's been around for what, almost half a century? You go to Japan and China and they have a long history of not getting along for very good reasons. These are cleavages that form, and sometimes they're irreparable. And in the United States right now, it seems like there's this cleavage forming that has been forming, this, this rupture that needs to be looked at clearly, squarely, and directly, because it's not going anywhere.
0: And so how do you, yeah. how do you deal with that? I mean, I think I think that's the fundamental issue of our time, of our generation. Um, I think that these—you're absolutely right. There have been ethnic communal conflicts that have persisted for millennia between different populations of people. Um, I think that they have become increasingly, um, you know, I think in in the past they've they've kind of persisted in isolation or a standalone event. But I think what you all almost need is for these issues to be, to culminate in, in a, a tipping point or culminate in a, at, a, at a, uh, a, a point in time where they represent a shock to the system.
2: But we seem to, you seem to be at the point where it's a shock to the system and people are just digging their heels
1: in deeper and deeper. Are people fighting yeah. in the street a tipping point?
0: Yeah, I think this is definitely a tipping point. and And I think that part of what we're lacking right now, which I hope that we get, is good leadership. Because I think people fundamentally, um, you know, uh, like to believe in charismatic visionaries. And um, we have not had adequate um, demonstration or, or modeling of the values that I think are going to be needed to heal our society. And we're we're currently, in the country in which I live, um, coming up against an election in a couple months, which I hope will restore the semblance of dignity and um, moral value-driven leadership that would um, Create and incentivize and encourage the type of behavior that will allow us to get on track to heal. I, I hope think so, ultima- but I, I, yeah, and I think ultimately societies don't change unless the 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 position that you're in is way worse than the effort that it takes to change. That's a really good point. point now, we're at that point where the position that we're in is so dire that it will force change because there's no there's there's no alternative because status quo is just not working for anybody and i think with good leadership and leadership that per, that not only sits at the top but also percolates to ceos and mayors and governors and individuals in their communities is what's going to drive that and come about that change that we need to heal
2: what about a third party in the united states granted it's too late for this election but historically it seems like if you look back over the course of the last 40 years of elections in the United States and you look at the maps of who votes where this is a country that is polarized and has been polarized for a long time it's no surprise to anyone that it's come to this tipping point and year after year after year You read people talking about the need for a third party in the system. And year after year after year, there's still the exact same outcome of two parties that people have absolute rock-bottom faith in that they can't organize around, that are defined not through unique perspectives on policy, but are defined by opposition to the other side of the debate. What kind of change has to happen in order to drive actual choice? Because you can't have a democracy with only two choices. Right? You have to have three. You're
0: totally right. You need to have three and you need to have other um viewpoints and constituents that are have fully formed ideas and i think you know to some extent we've seen some success in one party this this i mean from 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 my perspective on a, from looking at climate change there is you would say a very i would say almost radical view that we need to regulate everything so that we get on a climate compatible pathway um, which is was really encapsulated in a, a, a proposal called the Green New Deal, which was very polarizing to a lot of the um, the viewpoints that are focused more on markets and putting you know carbon taxes in place and trying to work with the economy rather than regulate the economy. Um, and what we saw is that one of the candidates actually adopted and embraced the Green New Deal. Many of the provisions within the Green New Deal, into their climate platform. Um, and I think that that third parties can be effective if they actually force and encourage the incumbent or one of the major parties to actually move in a particular direction or adopt a prevailing um, progressive viewpoint that actually advances the conversation. Um, so I think in, in some ways this you know, third party or having these these kind of satellite groups Has been effective, but you're absolutely right that we've 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 ended up in a situation where we only have two choices, and it it actually could undermine our democracy. Um, But I I do see that you you also see fractures within these these parties that actually might cause bigger breaks. And I think you know the, the current president is in a party that I think has been corrupted so much that it it will have to break apart because there's, um, uh, the the entire ethos of that party has been completely adulterated because of the current president's viewpoints and perspectives and policies. So my, uh, you know, perhaps what will happen is there could be, you know, an actual fracture or an, an actual uh, break apart of, of one of these parties uh, in the future, which I think would achieve what you're you're suggesting, which is having kind of more uh, on the political spectrum, more representation. That would uh, help ensure that there's enough competition and enough discussion to uh, ensure that we have durable uh, policies that are really reflect what society needs.
1: That's really interesting. So there could be like a metamorphosis of a party. Also, in addition to what you're saying, like I read that Abraham Lincoln was, it, was a Republican and he was the one who freed the slaves, so today that would be a very... what would you call it in your country? Uh, dem- Democratic? The Democratic Party would probably be the ones who would free the slaves? So there's sometimes a complete reversal of intention in these parties, too. So, maybe they are adaptable in that sense,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly, because the the party of Abraham Lincoln was the Republican Party, which was the one that freed the slaves, right? and And traditionally, the Democrats were on the other side. So we have seen kind of a um, it, these parties are not monoliths. they're they're malleable and they change over time. and And especially, I see a growing constituent of youth voters. That are are kind of no nonsense voters that are are not uh, going to placate um, the the views of the incumbents and and I've seen a lot of um, a lot of changes, particular in the Democrat Party, that have come about the the youth protests and the youth movements. And so I've I've actually been quite encouraged to see that. Not to say that we have a perfect system now, but um, it, it shows that that the the democratic process is in some ways, functioning.
2: Well, that's a Really, What is the healing narrative that can bring the two sides together in a way that is a starting point for being able to work on a project together?
1: What have, can everyone agree on?
2: Yeah, you have two sides that hate each other. And the only way that you can move forward without one side feeling like they are being oppressed without one side feeling like they are being locked out of decision making is by finding a starting point that everyone agrees on this is like basic conflict resolution
0: what's that starting point um yeah that's a that's a really good question. and i I try to think a lot about that in my own work and in my own conversations with people, uh, especially those that that may not um, be on the same side politically or even in terms of their interpretation of science and And I've found that that often I have to tailor my narrative depending on who I'm speaking with. You know, am I talking to a parent? Am I talking to someone? Um, who is struggling to know where their next meal is going to come from? Am I talking to someone uh, who uh, is really despondent and has no hope for the future? And the starting point for those conversations is very different and dependent on that profile and what motivates that person. I think ultimately everyone is... I don't think that i've I've heard of anyone that could oppose or wouldn't agree with us trying to build a, a future that is just, that is equitable, that is uh, that allows for all people to thrive and to be healthy. Those, I think are are clear principles that all human beings share. Now, how you, Operationalize or implement those principles will vary, right? People will have different ideas of what to do or what really is in their best interest or what will actually keep their children safest. But I think that those principles of of, of fairness and of uh, I would add reciprocity um, of of and of our health and well being are, are are kind of starting points, I think, for any of these conversations.
1: I love that. So it's all about tactics, just little fractures and tactics. But if we can agree on the strategy, which is, well, we, we agreed on it, but if you humans can agree on strategy that the earth needs repair, that you want to breathe clean air, that you don't want to be poisoned, then it's just a matter of tactics.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It's, I don't think we need to argue about the end goal right cuz for me my end goal is net zero emissions by 2050 but that may not resonate with a large portion of the population it might be a different goal right that we want to we want to be able to drink clean water or we want to be able to live in a world where we're not constantly on fire or that you know we're not experiencing superstorms you know multiple superstorms every year there there's there's different kind of entry points for that conversation. But I think, um, I know I've I've focused on not being outcome oriented in terms of, you know, a metric like carbon because something for 2050 isn't going to resonate with someone that's making decisions on a day-to-day basis. You kind of have to bring it to the personal level and to the experiential level. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for your Thank time. you for
0: having me. My pleasure. Welcome to our planet. Come visit anytime. We're <laughs> on our way. Oh.
1: Maybe we'll meet you in person one day.
0: (laughs) I hope so. Bye. Bye. Bye.